software companies can be funded in a variety of ways, venture capital, self-funding, and debt, among others. In order to receive financing, a company is evaluated on its ability to generate future cash flows. After all, evaluation is a number that summarizes the present value of future cash flows. Determining that valuation number is a complicated, subjective process. If the valuation can be determined more intelligently and objectively, then smarter financing decisions can be made. And this is the reasoning behind the company Capital, which aims to build a better modeling system for evaluating companies. Blair Silverberg and Chris Olivares are founders of Capital, and they join the show to explore the modeling process for valuations and their strategy for doing this with their software models. Before I start the show, I should mention we're looking for writers. If you're interested in writing for Software Engineering Daily, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. And also, I'm looking for companies to invest in. If you are running an infrastructure company or something for developers, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Blair and Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, good to be here, Jeff. We're talking about capital allocation today, and I'd like you to start off by describing the problems that you see with modern capital allocation for technology companies. I'm happy happy to start there. So I think it might be helpful to give the listeners a, a little bit of our backgrounds. So I was a venture capitalist at Draper Fisher Jurvetson for five years. I worked very closely with Steve Jurvetson, and we were financing our very R&D intensive technology projects that became businesses. So things like satellite companies, companies that were making chips to challenge the GPU, new applications of machine learning algorithms, so on and so forth. And I think the most important thing to recognize is that the vast majority of technology funding does not actually go to those kinds of companies. The venture space is a $250 billion per year investment space. The vast majority of that capital goes to parts of businesses that are pretty predictable, like raising money and then investing that in sales and marketing and inventory or building out technologies that have a fairly low technical risk profile. So the vast majority of tech companies find themselves raising money from a industry that was designed to finance crazy high technology risk projects at a time where that industry, because technology is so pervasive, you know, really due to the, the great work of, of many entrepreneurs over the past 20 to 30 years, technology is now mainstream. But the financing structure to finance those businesses is not, has not really changed much in that, in that period of time. Yeah. And then I guess, I guess I'll talk a little bit. My, my background is, is I came from consumer education sort of background. So direct to consumer, thinking about how you use tools and make tools that integrate into the lives of teachers, parents, and students. I was founding engineer at Class Dojo before starting Capital with Blair. And when Blair came to me, we were working on the early thesis, he, he was telling me a lot about this. And I was like, okay, the, the, the data out there exists to make more data-driven and data-enriched decisions. How do we build software to make that easy to access and self-service and sort of surfacing the signal from the noise? And, we kicked around the idea and I thought that there was just a tremendous opportunity to bring what Silicon Valley really pioneered, which is, I think, making software that is easy to use and you can integrate into your daily life into this kind of old industry of fundraising and capital allocation. The kinds of capital allocation that exist, there's equity and debt financing and different flavors of these of these things. Say more about the different classes of fundraising and how they are typically appropriated to different kinds of businesses. So you have the main, the main groups, you know, absolutely correct. So there's equity and there's debt. Equity means you sell part of your business forever to a group of people. And as the business grows and succeeds, they'll get a share in that success and, and, you know, ultimately income forever. Debt means you temporarily borrow money from somebody, you pay them for that money, and then at some point in time, that money's paid back and you get all the future income from your business. So equity is permanent, debt is not permanent. If you think about how normal companies are finance, like let's take the S&P 500, about 30% of the capital that S&P 500 companies use to run their businesses comes 
from debt. In the venture world, that's remarkably just 2%. And the thing that's crazy is this is 2% with early stage seed companies, also 2% with public venture-backed companies in places like the Bessemer Cloud Index, which is like a $1 trillion index of publicly traded technology companies started their life in, in, with venture backing, many of them SaaS companies. These companies also are just 2% financed with debt. But nonetheless, within these, these classes, the reason it's, it's obviously you know, economically much better for a business in pretty much every case to finance itself with debt because it's not, it's not permanent and it can be paid back. It's much, much cheaper to use debt. That's why you buy a house with a mortgage, you don't shell, you know, you don't sell 20% of your future income forever to your bank to help you buy a house. But the reason that people use equity comes back to the risk profile. And so just like if you lose your job and you can't pay off your mortgage, the bank owns your home, same exact thing happens with debt. And so historically, if there's very low certainty around the outcome in, you know, typically in an early stage investment, you're, you're doing a lot of, you know, brand new R&D, you have no idea if it's going to work, you hope, you know, over time that you'll be successful, but there's really quite a bit of uncertainty. Equity is a great tool, because you're, you're not going to lose a business, you know, everybody can basically react to a failed R&D project, decide what to do next, everybody has these same incentives. So equity is, is kind of like the consummate tool for high technical risk, high uncertainty investments. And then Debt is basically the tool for everything else, and it can be used, you know, as most companies do for, call it 90% of the places that businesses are investing. So if you're spending money on sales and marketing, and you know what you're doing, and you've been running campaigns before that were successful, very little reason you should use equity for that. If you're buying inventory, if you are a big business that's, that's reached a level of success, that um, means you have a bunch of diversified cash flows coming in. You know, businesses might take out debt on the business kind of overall, so it's less important what specifically you're using the money for. But it's important to recognize that you know most companies are financed roughly fifty-fifty equity versus debt. It's just it's just venture-backed companies that that are kind of uniquely equity financed. The capital that is being steered towards a recipient, it's often originating in a large source like a sovereign wealth fund or a family office and it's being routed through something like a capital allocator like a a venture capital firm for example or a bank Uh, how does this capital get allocated to these smaller sources what is the supply chain of capital in in a traditional sense you know it's kind of funny to think about capital and things like the stock market in the form of a supply supply chain, but this is exactly how we think about it. So at the end of the day, capital originates in somebody's savings, basically society's savings, right? You, you have a retirement account or you're a population like, you know, in, in Singapore and Norway, where there's a lot of capital that's sort of accumulated from, you know, from the, the population and these sovereign wealth funds, or you're an endowment that's you know, managing donations that have accumulated over many, many years. And ultimately, you're trying to invest this capital to earn a return and pay for something, pay for your retirement, you know, pay for the university's operation, so on and so forth. So that's where capital starts. And then it basically flows through the economy, in theory, to all of the economic projects that are most profitable and efficient for society. And so if you step back and you think about like, how how is it that the American dream or the Chinese miracle happen, you know, in in both of those cases, kind of at at different points over the last hundred years. Why is it that society basically stagnated? You know, the world was a pretty scary place to live in up until about 1750 when the Industrial Revolution started. Why is it that, you know, basically for all of human history, people, you know, fought each other for food and died at the age of 30 or 40. And over the last 250 years, that has totally changed. It's because we have an economic system that converts capital from its original owners, diverts it to the most productive projects, which, if they're successful, replace some old, more expensive way of doing something with a newer, better way. And so I think when, when I describe that, like, you know, I think most people can step back and say, yeah, okay, I, I kind of see how 
capital flows through the system. It goes ultimately to someone making an investment decision like a venture capital firm ultimately gets into the hands of the company. A company decides to invest in creating some great product that people love, you know, let's say like Amazon, and then everybody switches from you know, buying goods at some store that may or may not be out of, you know, may or may not be in stock to the world's best selection of anything you could ever want at the most efficient price. Like that's, you know, society gets wealthier basically through these, these kind of steps and these transformations. But it's fascinating if you step back and think about it, like nobody actually thinks this process is as efficient as it could be. Like, you know, we, we'd ask people all the time, people that were interviewing, you know, journalists, the companies we work with, so on and so forth. Like, how do you, how do you, how efficient do you think the world's capital allocation is? I've never met a person that says it's pretty good. You know, we're like 90% of the way there. In fact, <laughs> most people think it's pretty inefficient. They think of companies like, you know, WeWork and some of the more famous cases lately of, uh, of Silicon Valley backed businesses that, that, you know, totally, uh, underwhelmed and disappointed their initial expectations. And I think most people would admit that the, efficiency of capital allocation is either broken or nowhere close to achieving its potential. And so we basically, you know, we'll talk more about our technology and how we do what we do, but we basically think of this problem as our problem to solve. There's an incredible amount of opacity and inefficiency in how the data that goes from a project or a company ultimately funneling up to an investor flows. And so, you know, it's it's hard to place blame because there's so many people in the supply chain. But I think it's super clear that if it's difficult to measure whether or not a project or a business is good at converting capital into value and wealth and, you know, products that people want, it's nearly impossible for society to become really good and efficient at allocating its capital. So we're, we're here basically to make the data gathering, data transformation, you know, visualization, communication of what's actually going on under the, at a business as efficient as possible. And, you know, from that, we think some great things are going to happen to the economy. Go a little bit deeper on the role that a bank typically plays in capital allocation. Well, so if you think about how a bank works, like let's just take, you know, let's take a consumer bank uh, that most people kind of think about. You've, you've got a checking account right now. You've got some money in that checking account. That account actually takes your money. Your do- I mean, most people know this. Your dollars aren't sitting in that account, you know, just waiting around for you to withdraw them. Your dollars are actually rolling up into the bank's treasury. There's somebody at the bank working with the regulators to say, hey, how much of this money can we actually put into things like mortgages, commercial loans, you know, all of the the uses of capital that society um, has, you know, in some, some effort to, to move the world forward and make the economy efficient. And so those deposits basically roll up into a big investment fund. And, you know, there's ratios that uh, regulators set globally that say how many of those dollars need to be kept in reserve versus how many are actually able to be invested. But with the portion that's able to be invested, it's there to fund, you know, somebody building a house to fund a business, building a factory to fund sales and marketing or inventory procurement for some other business. And so a bank was was basically the original investment fund. And a bank has, unlike venture funds and other sources of, you know, as we typically think, private capital, a bank has this tricky problem where at any moment, all of the depositors holding the checking accounts could show up and say, hey, I want my money back. And so that's why banks have to deal with reserving capital predicting the amount of withdrawal. And, you know, classically, everybody wants their money at once at the worst possible time. And so banks have to deal with quite a bit of volatility. Now, if you take an investment fund, on the other hand, totally, totally different structure. So your typical venture fund will have money available to it for a period of 10 years from, you know, typically these larger pools of capital we talked to, we talked about. So very rarely, uh, individuals are investing their retirement savings in venture funds, typically at sovereign wealth funds, endowments, you know, basically pools of, of individuals' capital. And when one of these funds makes a commitment to a venture fund, it'll say, you've got the capital for 10 years, you've got to pay me back, you know, as investments exit. But other than that, we'll just check in 10 years from now, and we hope that we have more than we gave you to start with. And there, there's no liquidity problem, because the fund has effectively carte blanche to keep the money invested until some, you know, set of businesses grow and succeed and go public and make distributions 
So one thing that's sort of fascinating that's happened in the last 25 years is private capital, capital in the format of these kinds of funds have just grown tremendously. And so today there's a little over $5 trillion of private capital being allocated in this way. So think like buyout funds, venture funds, so on and so forth. These funds don't have the liquidity problems of banks. They can make much longer term forward-looking investments. This has created tremendous potential to make the economy more more efficient by taking out the time spectrum. You know, this is why venture investors can do things like finance SpaceX or Tesla, you know, and really build fundamental technologies in a way that a bank never could. So this is an amazing thing. It, however, leads to a very long feedback cycle. So the incentive goes way down when you take out the timeline over which an investment needs to pay back to carefully monitor and understand what's going on in a business day to day. So it's, you know, it's pretty interesting to think about the different pools of capital. There's not not to, you know, make it sound too confusing, but I think everybody will admit that the financial markets are, you know, incredibly diverse and complicated. You know, we track basically about, about 15 different kinds of capital and there's sort of pros and cons with each one. But, you know, a, a bank is one, a private fund is one, an insurance company's balance sheet is another. You know, you've got things like ETFs and public vehicles that hold capital. So there's quite a bit of complexity in the the structure of the financial markets. All right. Well, that's maybe the supply side of capital on, and then there's all kinds of middlemen and all kinds of different arrangements. But ultimately, there is also the demand side of capital, at least from the point of view of companies getting started, which is, you know, startups or companies that are in later stage, maybe they're not exactly considered startup anymore, but they're mature. These companies have models for how they are predicting they're going to grow, but oftentimes these companies are very lumpy in terms of how their their revenues come in, how closely their predictions can track reality. So how do technology companies even model their finances? Is there a way to model their finances that actually has some meaningful trajectory? Sure. So first, companies, you know, need to need to basically think about all the places that they're spending their money. And we are pretty, we do, I think, a pretty good job of organizing this and making it simple. So, you know, when we look at companies, and we can, we can talk more about how the, the capital machine operates. But when we look at companies, we basically think that there are only a handful of places that money gets spent. You spend money on short-term projects that you hope are efficient, things like sales and marketing. You spend money on paying for your sources of financing, like paying interest on debt, making distributions to your investors. And then you spend money on everything else. And everything else can be you know, designing software, building a product, so on and so forth. And so if you break the demand for capital down into just those three buckets and look at them that way, some pretty interesting things happen. The first is for those short-term investments that you hope are productive, you can track pretty granularly whether or not they are, and we'll come back to that. For paying back your investors, you sort of know exactly how much you're paying your investors. So that's a pretty easy thing to track. And then for the operating costs, you know, most people will call this OPEX, that you're paying to keep the lights on, you know, things like rent and the, you know, your accountants, the CEO salary, so on and so forth. These are these are table stakes expenditures that you need to, to stay in business. And so Amongst each of those three things, there's different things that you want to do to optimize. Um, and I'm happy to go into more detail and, and sort of go through each one if you think that'd be useful. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about about how these companies should be uh, modeling their revenues or a way that is meaningful to uh, model their revenues so that you can potentially think of them as targets for, for capital allocation. So if we think about understanding what company might be a viable recipient of capital, how can you accurately predict the trajectory of that company? Or, or do they would they present a model? Would they develop a model? Go through in a little more detail how a company would sort of justify its need for capital. So typically what, what most companies do, and this is not terribly useful or accurate, but I'll, I'll tell you what most people do. I mean, by the way, like how, how, you know, essentially the entire economy predicts, <laughs> predicts demand for capital works like this. Companies take their income statement and their balance sheet historically, 
and they they basically they have this Excel file and they've got a bunch of you know rows that have different things like my revenue, my you know revenue that's sort of linked or my expenses that are linked to revenue, my cost of goods sold, so on and so forth. And they grow each of those rows by some number that they hope to hit. So if you want your revenue to double next year, you'll say, hey, if my revenue was $100 today, I want it to be $200 12 months from now. I'm just going to draw a line between those two points. And every month, there will be some number that's you know on that line. And that's my monthly revenue. I want my expenses. You know, Everyone knows my expenses are going to have to go up if my revenue goes up, but I don't want them to go up as much as my revenue. So I'm going to draw a line that's you know somewhere less than a doubling. And you put all these lines together in one big Excel file, and there is your, you know, there are your corporate projections. In general, this is true for big companies, small companies. But that's not actually how company revenue works. Because if you go back to the three categories we talked about before, and you just focus on the one that talks about these short-term investments, the way company revenue actually works is a company this month, let's say they spend $100 on sales and marketing. Well, they're hoping to get a return on that sales and marketing. And so they're hoping that in the next, you know, six months that's paid back or 12 months that's paid back. You can actually track every time they spend money on sales and marketing, how quickly it gets paid back. So it's that level of precision that can accurately predict revenue. And so what we do is we basically just get a list of every time money was spent on one of these short-term investments. So we'll use sales and marketing for, for an example. And then we get a list of all of the revenue that was ever earned. And we attribute between both of those lists cause and effect. And we do that using a bunch of techniques that are pretty commonplace in your typical you know, data company or machine learning company. We use some math, things like factor graphs. We use, you know, simple kind of correlations. We have, uh, you know, a whole kind of financial framework to guess at what attribution should be because you learn a lot as you see different businesses and you see a bunch of different, different patterns, which you can basically cluster on. But it is this linkage between spending on something like sales and marketing and then seeing revenue go up or down that makes or breaks a business. And you want to look at it in isolation, not in a bundled you know, entirety, which is how financial projections are typically built. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit more about what you actually do. So if you're talking about early stage technology companies Describe how you are modeling those companies and how you are making decisions as to whether they should receive capital. When a company comes to capital, they they come to our website, they sign up for this system that we built, which which we've called the capital machine. And the first thing that they do is they connect their accounting system, their payment processor typically, so think like a Stripe. And then sometimes they'll provide other things like a pitch deck or a data room or whatever other information they have prepared. The system pulls down all of the data in the accounting system and the the payment processor. And we look at other systems too, but these are the two key ones that I'll, I'll dive into in detail. And so what ends up happening is from the accounting system, we get a list of all of the times the business has spent money on these things like sales and marketing that we were talking about before. From the payment processor, we get a list of all the revenue transactions, and crucially, we get it at the level of each each customer payment. And so, you know, we scrub PII. All we really care about is having a customer ID. But once we have data at that level, we can start to do this linkage and say, all right, look, you know, this business spent a million dollars on sales and marketing in March of 2018. In April of 2018, we saw revenue grow by 20%. That was a pretty substantial change. You know What actually happened here, you can typically identify the subcategories of sales and marketing and start to do this linkage between these two. And this is really the, you know, the magic behind our, our data science and our, our quant team um, pairing with our data engineering team to figure out this problem and solve it in a way that is, that's robust. But once we have these two data feeds, and the system goes through and does all of these attribution calculations, we're able to present that back to a company, a pretty clear picture of what's going on. And so we'll say things like, 
hey, your business is pretty seasonal. And in the summer is when you're typically more, more efficient at converting your sales and marketing dollars into growth. So first, you want to finance growth in the summer. The second thing is only about 80% of your business is financeable. There's 20% where you might not know it because you're not looking at this level of detail. You know, you're busy building your business, which is exactly exactly what you should be doing. But 20% of your business is not efficient. You're spending money on, on you know, sales and marketing categories, product lines, et cetera, that just shouldn't exist. And so if you get rid of those, if you double down in the part of your business that is efficient, then we predict your revenue will be you know, X, 50% higher. And we'll tell you exactly how much money you need to invest to raise money, to, to raise the revenue by 50%. We give you a bunch of charts that allow you to see how history and projections merge together and dig down and inspect how we do that linkage to make sure that you agree. But this is what the capital machine does at its core. It converts company data into a fully audited, completely transparent picture of how a business works, where it's efficient, where it's not efficient. And then that's where our technology stops and where our balance sheet comes in. And so we then take this information and we make balance sheet investments directly in companies. And so primarily at this point, we lend money to technology companies that we see from their data are eligible for non-dilutive funding. We make that capital available to them directly. We basically allow them to access it through the capital machine. We use this one system to communicate changes to the business, You know, keep both sides informed, so on and so forth. But this is the kind of analytics layer that's essential to making these capital allocation decisions more efficient. And so I think you could imagine a day, at least for us in the not too distant future, when it's not just us using our balance sheet and this tool to make investments. But in fact, just like Excel, every investor can benefit from a similar level of analytics and transparency, as can companies by getting more accurately priced, you know, faster access to capital, less friction, so on and so forth. The inputs specifically, you know, if you think about a model for determining whether or not a company should re- should be eligible to receive capital, I'd like to know how the the models are built, the the uh, data science models that you're building are constructed from the point of view of the inputs. So how are you determining or how do you, you know, like a company comes to you, how do you turn that company into some structured form of data that you could put into your models and determine whether it's worthy of capital? Yeah, I mean, it kind of comes down to what what the data is that you're pulling down. So when we connect to a system like Stripe or a transaction record system, we know that that's the revenue of the company. Now, where things get interesting is when we connect to balance sheets and P&L statements of a company, it really comes down to understanding at a more granular level what exactly these numbers mean. And that's sort of where we've made our data pipeline and sort of built it from the ground up to give us that granular view of a company's cash flows, not only revenue streams, but you know where's the money going and where are they allocating it. And it's that level of granularity once, once you understand that data through that lens that lets you build pretty sophisticated financial models on top of it. And you know, as soon as you have a picture of a company, you know, you can really do a lot of flexible analysis on the back of like distributed computation, kind of stuff, stuff that you would never be able to do in Excel. And quite frankly, like a lot of these companies don't have the staffing internally or really the tools to understand these insights for themselves. So you'd be surprised that, you know, when we surface this analysis back to the company by virtue of just being transparent on how it is we're making a decision, how it is we see their business, the signals that we're uncovering, these the operators, the CEOs, the CFOs that are really focused on building their company are really surprised and they're really, they, they think that these insights are really transformative to how they think they should access capital in the future and where they think they should invest in growing the business. Are there any th- sources of third-party data that you can gather to improve the decision-making? There are at a macroeconomic sense. And so it's actually quite useful to look at public company performance and say, hey, 
SaaS businesses in general, and most people know this about SaaS businesses, but SaaS businesses in general are seasonal in the fourth quarter, budgets basically expire and people come in and they buy a bunch of SaaS, SaaS software. And so to take concepts like that, you know, basically shapes of curve signals and apply them to private company financials is useful. Crucially, though, there is no private company data repository of any kind. Like it just doesn't exist. And, you know, notoriously, even even with small businesses, it's actually quite, quite difficult to get access to any sort of meaningful credit data. And so what ends up happening is these uh, these businesses give you a picture of their business directly as an investor and you have to interpret it directly. And that's basically how this works. Totally unlike consumer credit, you know, there's no credit bureau that people paying. So most investors are analyzing this data in Excel. Excel notoriously breaks when there's about a million cells worth of data. And so we've got this great visualization showing our data pipeline and it's basically a bunch of boxes and there's a little tiny box in the bottom left left corner that's Excel. And there's a bunch of other boxes across the entire rest of the page that are nodes in our in our distributed you know computations. But Excel is very very limited, and so it makes it impossible to actually understand what's going on in the business from the source data. And it's at the source that you see this variability and this linkage between profitable capital allocation decisions and unprofitable capital allocation decisions. Describe in more detail the workflow. So a company comes to you and they're going to put their inputs into the what you call the capital machine. What does that workflow look like in a little bit more depth? Yeah, so when they come to the website, they create an account, much like you would on, you know, if you're creating a Twitter or Facebook account, um, you enter your details in your, your email, you verify your email, and then you land on what we're calling like the capital portal. And on there, you have a set of um, tools to connect your systems of record. And these are, you know, typical OAuth flows. So, you know, flows that people are very familiar with. You, um, you know, you say, hey, let's connect my QuickBooks. You enter your credentials in sort of a, a secure way and you click OK. And the system, you get a check mark by your QuickBooks and the system starts pulling down that data out of regular cadence. And, you know, depending on what system you're connecting and you know, kind of the characteristics of that particular systems of record and how much data you have. You know, the data is available anywhere from 10 minutes to a couple of hours later. And, you know, once we have that data in our system, we run that through our, our data analysis pipeline. And the user, is, as a company, you get, you, you get charts back in a, in a tab, and we kind of call it the insights tab. And these are views that we think would be helpful for you as an operator in a company to understand about your business. And then separately, we also get views of that data that are useful to our, our internal investment team and whoever is looking to make capital allocation decisions. Are there certain business categories that are a better fit for modeling and better fit for the kind of uh, predictable capital returns that you can you can expect with the investments that you're making? So like, you know, ride sharing or gig economy businesses or SaaS businesses? What are the categories that are the best fit? I was just going to say very few categories don't fit from this from the perspective of, of linkages, but there's certainly models that I think are easier to think through and, and easier to understand. But our, our system can underwrite today a uh, lease on a commercial aircraft, a fleet of ships, an insurance agency, a SaaS company. I mean, the most important thing about our system is that the financial theory that underlies it is very general, just like a PE ratio is very general. And so that kind of sounds crazy. Like a lot of, uh, you know, we'll sometimes hear this from people. A lot of people say, well, what, what business is a best fit for your, your system? And, you know, it's kind of like asking what business is a best fit for Warren Buffett? Like Warren Buffett is a generalist. He can invest in any business and he has a framework in his own head to figure out how to make a ship comparable to American Express. Our system has a very similar framework. It just operates at the level of transactions instead of at the level of financial statements. But certainly within that framework, there's some examples that are just easier to describe. So I think like 
you know, thinking through the efficiency of sales and marketing, something that's a lot more obvious than thinking through like the stability in refurbishment of commercial aircraft parts, which is a key question, you know, pricing, pricing of refurbished parts, which is a key question if you're financing a commercial aircraft. And our team, the investors that use the, the capital machine internally, which we primarily do internally, we do a little bit of partnering with, with outside groups to, to use this as well. These people are all specialists in some particular area, but it's crucial to understand they're looking at the exact same charts as all of the other specialists in all of the other areas. So it's like literally the, the SaaS company and a commercial aircraft will have the same series of charts and investors are there to, to draw their own conclusions. This is a question for Chris. Can you describe the stack of technologies that you've built in more detail? Yeah, yeah, of course. On the front end, we are React, TypeScript, kind of on Next.js. You know, everything is on AWS. And in the back end, we're, we're all Python. And, and really the reason for that is if you're doing any serious machine learning or, or data science today, you can't really get away from the Python stack. So we're all Python in the back end. We have Flask as an as, a, as our API layer. And yeah, that's the, that's the high level. And can you talk in a little bit more detail about how the, the data science layer works? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. So we pull down the data into basically a data lake. Then that goes down into our data pipeline. And that's all air orchestrated on top of a technology called Airflow. And we use a technology called Dask for our distributed computation. And I think that this is a good choice for us. At this moment, you know, I see us doing a lot of work on, you know, using uh, Spark and other distributed technologies in the future and as we grow out the team. And, you know, it turns out that when we pull this data down and organize in the data lake, what's, what's sort of really important to us is, is we build a lot of abstractions to make accessing that data really easy for quantitative analysts. Because what's, what's really important and central to our whole technology is that we're able to do a lot of different financial analysis and experiment very quickly on top of this data. And so the, the implications of that really cascade down all the way into you know, what technologies we're choosing, how we structure our data lake, you know, even, even how we structure our teams. So it really has broad implications across the whole product. How is it that when you're analyzing a company that you have enough data that it warrants a Spark cluster? Because I can imagine the financial data around a company, how can there really be that much data to analyze? Oh, you'd be, you'd be surprised. You know, in a lot of these transaction systems, particularly if the companies have been around a couple of years and they're direct to consumers, these data sets can be, can be pretty large. You know, we're talking about in the millions and millions and millions of transactions that we're pulling down and storing. And that's just on a per company basis. You know, that's not even talking about if we want to do benchmarks cross companies and also if we want to do scenario analysis. So, you know, one of the things we do as part of our data pipeline is take this data and run it through like 90 or 100,000 simulations to understand the sensitivity of different variables on the performance of your business. And, um, you know, you can imagine if you're, if you're starting out with a starting data set that's already large, um, there's sort of a multiplying effect on on how much data the system needs to be able to process as you go through those different stages. And can you tell me in a little more detail, like what would a typical Spark job look like for a company that you're assessing? Yeah, so first step is, is sort of in our, our financial data ingestion part. So we download something on the order of you know, 40, 50 gigabytes of transaction data from, for a company. Then we have to do all of the work to interpret and understand what that means and reorganize that data in a way that our downstream analysis and primitives can uh, make sense of and use for useful analysis. So really the first step of the Spark job is, is transform the data into something that's useful. And then there's all the work on, you know, what, what are the clusters and what are the machines and the analysis and the computational uh, resources needed to run all these simulations? You know, not, not just on your local computer, your local computer would kind of fall over. You only have about 32 at best, 64 gigabytes of RAM locally. So that's where you know the workflow comes in and creating easy-to-use interfaces into DAS clusters and being sure that you know when you run a job, you know when it fails, you know when it's done, you know when the quant team can, you know, okay, this part of our analysis is done. I have this intermediate data asset ready to do more analysis on. You know, now it's time to get back to work. Is a lot of the time we spend um, developing internal tools to make easy. One other thing that I'll mention that I think is important is 
a lot of the underlying technology in our data pipeline, it's no different than like what a Tableau or you know any traditional BI business would have access to. But what's fascinating is when you have a vertically specific domain, so financial data in our case, you can make a lot of interpretations about the data that let you do much more intelligent things. And so, for example, we you don't have to make your own charts as a user of the capital machine. We make all the charts for you. You can, of course, you know, as a business we work with, give us ideas for charts. You can mock up your own. You know, we, we basically have an interface for for business BI teams to to write some code if they if they want to. But when you have quants who are thinking about financial risk, financial attribution across all of the companies that we see, distilling that down into a series of indicators that are detailed but generalizable, and then publishing that back to all of the companies that use the capital machine to run their own capital allocation decisions and access external you know, fundraising and, and capital. Some pretty amazing things happen. And so it's only with a a vertical view, you know, actually having these, we call our data scientists quants, but but actually having these people who, you know, typically are graduate level uh, economists thinking for the first time about using transaction level data in their analysis, which, you know, is notoriously not not available to, to you know, to a normal economist, that, that you get the kinds of insights and analysis that, that are actionable for businesses. And then in terms of the data pipeline, that then means we actually store a bunch of intermediate data that's opinionated in that way. And that makes it much faster to access, much easier to benchmark, you know, much more useful across a network of companies versus just that isolated Excel model that you know, explains only one business. One thing I'd like to ask you about, capital intensity. So there are kinds of businesses that are capital intensive, for example, where you have to pay upfront for a lot of ride sharing rides and you know as, as uber or lyft has has known in much detail you know you you allocate all this capital to things to subsidize rides because you try to win a market there's all kinds of other capital intensive businesses how does capital intensity change what makes sense with regard to the equity financing or the debt financing that you are shepherding for these companies that is a great question, and because of where you focus, and, and I think your audience, you, you totally get this in a way that most financiers don't. So the first point, exactly like you said, capital intensity means a business consumes a lot of capital. It doesn't mean a business has a physical factory or plant or rail cars. So it is absolutely true, exactly like you said, that there are a lot of tech businesses that are incredibly capital intensive. If you are a capital intensive business, that means you need, especially if you're growing, you need to raise a lot of external capital. And so it is even more important that your capital or a big portion of your capital base is not dilutive. That's that's just essential, you know, kind of table stakes. Because what you see with these businesses, the ride sharing companies are a great example, is by the time one of these things actually goes public, the early owners in the business own a very, very, very minuscule piece of that business still. If you contrast that to a company like Viva Systems, which I think is one of the most capitally uh, or capital efficient businesses in venture history, I think that business raised something like 12 or $15 million total before it went public at a, at a multi-billion dollar market cap. And so capital intensity is a synonym for dilution, you're going to own way less of your business than you think when you exit. And it is even more important that you figure out a way to raise capital non-dilutively up front. Some broader questions, uh, just zooming out and, and getting your perspective. Do you have a thesis for what is going on in the economy right now where you look at the fact that we have obvious pressures to reducing the size of the economy through the lack of tourism, the lack of social gatherings, while the stock market climbs higher and higher. And it appears that the technology side of things is almost unaffected by uh, coronavirus. Is there is there a thesis that you've arrived at? Or, or is there a set of theses that through conversations with other people, you've 
found most compelling? Sure. The most important thing to realize about the stock market is that it discounts all cash flows from all businesses in the stock market to infinity. And so the value of the stock market, about 80% of the value of the stock market is pretty far into the future, like more than three years from now. And so if you believe that the current economic crisis, and this is why there's always a recovery, you know, at least in, in the Western world over the last 250 years after an economic crisis, if you believe the crisis will eventually revert and there will be a recovery, then it only makes sense to discount stock market assets by anywhere between 10 and 25%. If you believe a business is fundamentally going to go out of business because of this crisis, that's a different story. But that explains why something as terrible as COVID-19 and a pandemic only discounted the stock market by, by you know, roughly 30, 35% in, uh, in March. But that's not what's actually going on today, as you mentioned. And so stock market prices now have completely recovered. That is something that we think is, is, is a little bit of, you know, out, out of sync with reality. But I, I should mention, you know, we're, we're not, we don't spend too much time thinking about the stock market beyond that. We, we just look at, you know, private company fundamentals. We try to understand what's actually going on in individual businesses. And then we look across all the businesses in our network to see what, you know, what we can understand and, you know, what kind of conclusions we can draw. And so if you take that lens and you actually look at what's happening to businesses due to COVID-19, it's fascinating. Some businesses like think the food delivery space have gotten a lot more efficient. So those businesses looked a lot like ride sharing businesses back 12 months ago. There was sort of a bloodbath between a bunch of companies competing in local markets to acquire customers, all all fighting on Google and Facebook and so on and so forth, you know, subsidies for drivers, et cetera. Um, that's essentially stopped. These businesses are incredibly profitable. The cost to acquire customers has fallen by even more than half in a lot of cases. The channels are just a lot less competitive. And so if you're running one of those businesses, now is a great time to be aggressively expanding. Weird things like commercial construction businesses. There are actually a handful of businesses that we've seen that do things like install windows and doors in commercial buildings whose businesses have accelerated because all of these buildings are closed down. Construction project timelines have gotten pulled up. All of these orders are coming due and they're you know sort of rapidly doing installations. There's obviously a bunch of other businesses that have been that have been hurt by by the pandemic. But you know, our general thesis, our general view, we've we've studied you know in a pretty detailed way the the Spanish flu in 1918. You know, these things eventually go away. There will be a vaccine, the economy will get back to normal, and as long as we can stay focused on working through this as as a society and you know sort of maintain our our fabric of of you know kind of economic progress then the stock market values today will eventually make sense it's just sort of a question of of when for the stock market and then if you're if you're actually running a business and and thinking about your own performance in isolation really being clear about is now the time to invest and grow my business or is now the time to be very careful with my expenses and just get through this for the next you know year or however long it takes for there to be a vaccine so the way to think about your company, if I understand correctly, if I was to, to put it in a, a nutshell, is that I think of you as a data science middleman between large capital allocators and and startups deserving of capital. So the the sovereign wealth funds, the banks, the, I guess, funds of funds, these kinds of sources are essentially looking to you for guidance on where to direct the capital and uh, you're on the other on the other side absorbing data and creating opportunities from these startups to source the good directions of that capital just to wrap up would you would you put any more uh, color around that description or or refine it in any way yeah, I mean, I think that at the core of, of what capital is, is is where the core technology enabler of sort of the private market. So if you think about public markets today, you have clearing houses like the New York Stock Exchange, and you have, you know, companies that provide analysis on top of that, like Bloomberg. You know, we see a tremendous opportunity to shift the paradigm where, you know, the place where all of the financial transactions happen 
is also the place that collects the data and provides information for those making those decisions. And yeah, so I think you know, capital is really at the center of making a transparent, technologically enabled financial marketplace. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and discussing capital. And I guess one, one last question is, do you have any predictions for how capital allocation for startups will look differently in five, 10 years? Sure. So the first prediction, and this is happening now, I mean, the, the infrastructure is absolutely in place, both with us and, and others. Most startups fairly early in their life think, is equity the only way to do this? And so that's a cultural shift that's, that's, that's already happened. People are starting to ask that question. The second prediction is seed and Series A funding will be entirely unchanged. After Series A, there will be a bifurcation between businesses that are really capital-intensive, gigantic R&D projects, think like SpaceX, where the Series B, C, D, E, and F are really about building and launching a rocket. Those businesses will, by and large, not turn outside of equity to finance themselves, but there's very few of those businesses. Pretty much every other business, businesses that you see raising a Series B, a Series C, will, like any normal business in the entire rest of the economy, raise maybe half of that capital non-dilutively, either in the form of debt, royalty financing, factoring, all of the other instruments that normal companies use to finance themselves and avoid dilution. That will happen roughly three years from now. That'll, that'll kind of, we'll see obvious obvious signs of that from a very early very early base and then the final the final thing is Steve Case talks a lot about this with the rise of the rest and he's got this great venture fund that that invests explicitly outside of the coast so kind of the rest of America and we've seen that there's there's a pretty dramatic distinction between being a coastal business and non-coastal business from a capital access perspective, but there's no distinction from an actual performance perspective. And so we'll start to see some of the regional differences and biases around where capital flows go away. And so I would maybe put that that on a five-year timeline, like raising capital is actually much more predictable, much less biased. And that's great. Back to the beginning of our conversation, that's great for the economy. I mean, every project or business that can convert capital to products and services that people love should get financed. No questions asked. Doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't matter what the color of your skin is, what background, you know, you have, whether you went to college, didn't go to college, just doesn't matter. You have a business with data that can prove whether people love it or whether people don't love it. And so I think we'll start to see that over the next five years. All right. Sounds like a great place to close off. Blair and Chris, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having us.